Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. I am thrilled to have on the line today the acclaimed and award-winning photojournalist Marcus Bleasdale. Marcus uses his significant talents to shine a spotlight on human rights abuses and conflicts around the world. You can find some of his more recent work from the Central African Republic in the May 2017 issue of National Geographic magazine, and we kick off with an extended conversation about the conflict there and how he went about documenting it. Marcus started out his career as a banker in London, but the conflict in the Balkans in the 1990s inspired him to change career paths in a very dramatic way, and he describes that transition as well as some of his work in the DRC and Sierra Leone. And I want to thank Marcus for being so open and honest about confronting PTSD. It's important that we destigmatize that mental health issue, and frankly, all mental health issues. And Marcus describes the emotional toll that his work takes. So I should say at the outset that I have followed Marcus's work for years and consider myself a fan. Needless to say, I was so flattered to learn that he's a longtime listener to this podcast. And I learned that he was a longtime listener a few months ago when he signed up as a premium subscriber and I got the little email notification with his name on it. I emailed him back immediately telling him I was such a fan and inviting him to come on the show sometime in the near future. And here we are. So big thank you to Marcus, big thank you to other premium subscribers out there. I think you will love this episode. Absolutely fascinating. Remember to pick up a copy of National Geographic magazine where you can find his work. And you can also see some of the photos that we describe, that we discuss in T-Dale in this conversation on MarcusBleasdale.com. And now here he is. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I, I love your show. It's great. Thank so you. It feels, it feels I, many, many an hour on a rough Central African Republic road listening to your podcast. Oh, so that, is, that is so kind. I have been following your work for years, so it just means a lot coming from you. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, just keep it up too. I think it's uh, you're you're really engaging our community in a, in an interesting way and giving you know I think giving food for thought. For, oh, well, thank uh, you. Uh, so that's good. It's great. So I don't know if I've ever had spoken with a, a photojournalist before. So I may be a little out of my element when trying to articulate uh, questions about your craft. But I, I'm just eager to learn uh, about how you do what you do. And just to to kick off, then I mean, how many times have you been to the Central African Republic now? The first time I went to Central African Republic was in 1998. Um, but then I was covering the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I, I went to car at that time, maybe five or six times. And then I went back in 2008 through 2010 
covering the LRA, uh, and, and I probably went there three or four times. And then um, the most recent uptick uh, of violence in, in 2012, 2013, I think it was a total of six or seven trips over three years. And um, those trips culminated in the work that's in the May issue of the National Geographic magazine? That's right, yeah. I, um, the, the work that I'd done for Human Rights Watch uh, started that body of work and, and the coverage of this particular period of conflict in CAR. And, uh, and I worked together with uh, the director of emergencies, Peter Bukart at Human Rights Watch. Uh, and, uh, and we worked uh, covering that conflict and reporting on human rights abuses for two and a half years. And then uh, I should say, and we, I should say just how useful Peter's Twitter feed and your Twitter feed and your work was at that time for helping the rest of the world understand what was going on in the Central African Republic, which is needless to say, not a place where a lot of foreign policy people have much expertise, certainly not a place that I knew much about before the conflict erupted in uh, what is it late 2012, uh, early 2013. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it, it was really a, an experiment, uh, uh, and uh, in terms of you're know, using social media in that context, and and whilst I'd used it for my own purposes before and trying to you know highlight the work that I was doing as an individual photographer in individual spaces, I'd never used it you know together with a you know a, a, a lawyer in a in an environment like CAR covering it for an organization like Human Rights Watch. And, and it was uh, really impactful when you start being followed by several politicians on both sides of the conflict, both Buzese's side and the Seleka. And then the Ministry of Defense in France starts following you. And uh, you, you tend to see that, you know, that there is a, that the policymakers are listening to what is going on in, on the ground. And and I, I don't know if this is overstating it, but I really feel, and I've discussed this at length with Peter as well, I really feel that without that social media and without that presence and without that um, ability to put the conflict in front of people so immediately, we could have seen, you know, on the 20th of anniversary of Rwanda, we could have, you know, experienced something similar. And, uh, you know, seeing the hundreds of thousands of uh, displaced people leaving Bangui on the backs of trucks, and most of them arriving safely in Chad or Cameroon. Um, you know, I, I kind of had that that thought in the back of my mind that if not just Human Rights Watch, but many other advocacy groups as well weren't there, making sure that people were seeing what was happening, then then I, I don't know what could have happened. That I mean, that's a, a really interesting point because, you know, at the time, there were all these warnings coming from the United Nations that the situation in the Central African Republic was, was pre-genocide, right? That there was a really high potential for a genocide to break out. A genocide did not break out, I think, in part for the reasons you described, in part because the international community um, took the, took some initiative there that they didn't take in, in Rwanda in the early days. And so as opposed to a genocide, though, you still had some really horrendous mass atrocities and horrendous violence that, that you documented. Um, one, one sort of aspect of your work that I want to ask you about is, you know, there with, with, you know, tweets, say from the Human Rights Watch chief, uh, Peter Buchart, who, who you traveled around with. I mean, one might expect that belligerents to the conflict or people who want to see, see, see things certain ways might be able to easily dismiss 
his tweets as being fabrications or, or having an agenda behind it. But I imagine it's probably like a lot harder to dismiss, you know, your own lying eyes when you see the kind of photographs that you're taking documenting precisely what, you know, Peter is, is tweeting about. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's easy to kind of underestimate the work that goes behind 140 characters when you're putting it out by a human rights lawyer in a, in a, in a space like that. It, it, it seems like the, you know, <laughs> 140 characters is quite easy to put together, but there's an enormous amount of work that goes into the justifying what it is that you're saying within those 140 characters. Possibly more, more thought goes into that than than maybe some of the tweets that some politicians are using today. But uh, it's you know a lot of thought went into those um, those tweets, and 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 when we're especially Peter when he's reporting on the ground. You know, he's working as a lawyer would work. You don't get one opinion. You get you get several when you, you, you try to backtrack and challenge and and review and rethink and try to get several different um, accounts of a particular massacre, for example, so that you can underline the fact that, yes, this happened on this time and this many people. And, 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 and it's it's really well fact checked. And then you present that information in 140 characters. And so the the, the work that goes on behind the scenes to make that happen is 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 really important but as you say if you can then underline that with visuals with both footage and stills that we were posting and and filing for human rights watch on a daily basis then it becomes difficult to argue with what you can see um would you uh mind sort of telling people who are unfamiliar unaware of of the situation in the central african republic how violence erupted there what what what's the backstory and and i know this is told in in a vivid detail uh in the national geographic article for which you contributed photos but could you um just let people know sort of what what's the background of this conflict how did this erupt i know it's obviously very complex but um when you went like what was the instigator of the fighting that erupted in december 2012 well, I think for us to understand what was happening in 2012, we actually have to go back to 2003 when Francois Bozzesi came to power, the, the previous president. And he came to power using quite a lot of foreign fighters to, um, to give him the security uh, that he needed to overthrow Patese, who was the president that he was ousting at the time. Uh, as, it came, as, it, as it happened that Patese... Uh, lost power in a bloodless coup. He was out of the country at the time and Bozzesi took power in 2003. But a lot of the people that Bozzesi used to seize power and, and to give him the fighting strength uh, expected some form of payment and they didn't receive it. In fact, Bozzesi uh, out, uh, was, was quite um, specific in his targeting of them. And many of them ended up uh, in exile in different countries and then imprisoned in different countries. So he didn't just stiff his contractors, he imprisoned his contractors. Oh. Or he asked other foreign leaders in different countries around the Central African Republic to imprison them, yes. Uh -huh. And so that was, you know, and so Jutodia, Michael Jutodia, who then became the leader of the Seleka movement and then the president of the Central African Republic in 2013, he was one of those. He was in exile in Benin and then he was in jail in Benin. And many of the people that he recruited uh, post 2003 going into 2005 there was something uh, called the bush wars uh, that, that lasted several years and and Jatodia's men and uh, and many of the Seleka fighters that were then rallied together in 2012 were fighting those bush wars so we fast forward 
into 2012, and, and Jutodi had now been released from imprisonment in Benin, as had many of his um, other followers. There was other significant people. Um, Noradin Adam had come back from uh, working as a security official in um, the in Dubai, I think. And uh, Mohammed Bahar, who turned out to be the head of intelligence for the Seleka, had been released from jail in Chad. And there were many others that were also in jail, spattered around either Chad or Cameroon or Benin. And, uh, and so now these people came together in 2012. And, you know, in the kind of old concept of um, understanding how conflicts work, some people would say that they had, you know, real grievance. They had been... Um, uh, they had you know, been, as you say, st st stuffed by Bozese. They had been mistreated by him. They'd been imprisoned. And they really wanted to uh, make a point. Whether they actually wanted power, ultimate power and leadership at that time is a big question. And, and the people that I've been speaking to in car at length have, uh, are of uh, uh, several different minds on this, and, so, and many academics as well don't believe that, that Jutodia thought that he could take power at that time. What they were looking for was some form of political legitimacy to give them access to some form of political rent, if you mm -hmm. use the phrase of Alex Deval. You know, it's, they were looking for access to revenues, and no matter what political situation they could manage to insert themselves in, that the, they just they would they were focusing on trying to get access to to revenues and whether that meant that they would be minister of interior or minister of mines or governor of a particular province after a period of negotiations and peace deals they they didn't really know but uh, i think initially that was their focus so how did then, this then turn into them controlling the government and the uh sort of an ethnic-based conflict uh taking over the country yeah so um uh, essentially the 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 rebel groups, Seleka rebel group, were, were halted in Sibut, which is about 100 kilometers from the capital, 180 kilometers from the capital of, of uh, Central African Republic, Bongi. And um, they, there was then a, a, a meeting in Libreville. Uh, they, they, they signed the Libreville agreement to establish a government of national unity, and that was in January 2013. But then in March 2013, the Seleka rebels then continued towards Bongi. They didn't trust Buzese. They didn't trust this uh, government of national unity. Uh, they thought that Buzese was going to do exactly what he'd done to them in 2008, um, which was try to come to some sort of peace deal and then try to imprison them afterwards. And so they went straight for the capital. And at that time, um, Jutodia and the Seleka coalition took control of Bongi and Jutodi declared himself president in March 2013, and that then resulted in quite a, an oppressive, violent rule from Jutodi's Seleka government and most of the people in the Central African Republic who were living in the bush villages and the towns fled into their farms, which are normally located about five or six kilometers away from the main roads, away from their villages in the bush. And they then relocated to those places. So most of the Central African Republic was displaced at that time. And I remember one of the first trips that Peter and I made in the Central African Republic. We drove from Bongi to Bosangoa. And, and, uh, and we were the first car that wasn't a Seleka vehicle that had gone up that road in six months. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever traveled in Africa, but if you're going through a road, we travel for 200 
250 kilometers, not a single soul did we see on the road. And, no one and, like tried to come up to you to sell you anything or anything like that? Nothing. There, was, huh. there, there wasn't a single person we saw on that trip. Um, the second trip we what made... What did that tell you when, when, when you saw I mean, did you realize how bizarre that was at the moment? You could feel the fear. You could see, you know, the villages, of course, had been attacked. Many of them had been burnt to the ground. Um, and they were just empty. You saw the goats and the chickens and the and the pigs from, you know, the livestock of the people that used to live there just, just kind of wandering around free. And the, the whole village is either burnt or closed up and, and clearly no one living there. And, and it was fear uh, because the way that the Seleka used to roam through the towns and the villages was they'd drive through here. And if they if they saw anyone, they just spray bullets into the village, hoping that you know they would continue this spread of fear, and uh, and that's the way that the population of the Central African Republic lived and, uh, until uh, the 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 anti-Balaka, which is a, a more of a grassroots militia, came out of the self-defense forces kind of coordinated attacks in December in 2013, and and that started to change the dynamics slightly. And 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 this fear that that had been experienced by the majority of the population of the Central African Republic was channeled through the Antibalaka at the Selika, and uh, and that Selika regime then fell in January 2014, and as a result of that Selika uh, government disintegrating and the coalition disbanding a little bit earlier, then the, the, the leader of that movement, Michael Jutodia, was, was out of the country at the time. He, when he resigned, he was in N'Djamena and never returned. So that left all of these fighters, some of whom were from the Central African Republic, some of them were from Chad, some of them were from Sudan, many of them there as mercenaries looking to you, you know, earn money for their, for their weapons and their fight, uh, turned on again, uh, the the people of the Central African Republic and, and, and tried to retreat, but also whilst they were doing that, were looting and burning and attacking. Um, and so this uh, local group, the anti-Balaka, that had, had come, you know, grassroots that had been made up of ex-Faka soldiers, the Force Armée Centrafrique soldiers that had fled when, uh, when the, when the um, Bozezi government fell, plus the local defense forces when they came together um, uh, to chase the Seleka out of the country. The local population then followed in this almost tidal wave of relief and anger, and they then focused their anger on the largely innocent Muslim population in the Central African Republic. And, and, that's, and then you saw this, these, these sort of massive refugee movements out of the country at that time. Exactly, yeah. And so, you know... For, there was a lot of negotiation with the UN at the time. Uh, I think the UN didn't want to facilitate um, the movement, that movement of population. Mm -hmm. It'd be so like it facilitating became, ethnic cleansing in, in, in a way, which is... There were some yeah. advocacy groups that did call it that. Amnesty International used those words. I know that. Uh, I know Human Rights Watch didn't. But it could be, if you kind of look at this, you know, there were hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of Muslims who left the country to go to Chad and Cameroon as a result of the violence that was being perpetrated against them. And so, you know, there, there are legal discussions that we can have about whether this was ethnic cleansing or not. But the end, the final impact was the same, that we had the lot largely, the, 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 the whole of the population, the Muslim population of the Central African Republic was moved 
both out of the country and into the northeastern part of the country. Yeah. Apart from a small enclave in Bangui, in an area called Pique Sank, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where where uh, s- uh, some Muslims stay and still stay. Well, uh, can I ask you about that? Because I, I know there are a number of your photographs from PK Sank in that Nat Geo uh, magazine article. Can you can you sort of describe sort of what you saw in in that uh, Muslim quarter of of Bangui and and how you went about documenting that? Yeah, I, I, after the kind of initial exodus um, of the Muslim population. Essentially, the Muslim population was moved from or chased out of the areas they used to live, and they were kept in these enclaves. So there was a group of Muslims uh, living in Piquet 5, and there was a group of Muslims living in Piquet 13. Piquet is is like kilo, meaning kilometer 5 mm-hmm. or kilometer 13. Piquet 13 is kilometer 13. 13 kilometers from the center of the city. Yeah. I think that's like uh, how Detroit organizes their their uh, <laughs> their city planning as well. But yeah, go on. <laughs> okay, I, I don't want to make any analogy between Bungie and Detroit. But uh, but I you know I think uh, the, essentially these enclaves became uh, really flashpoints, and so we worked very closely in Piquet 13 and in Piquet 5, documenting uh, how this Muslim population was living. Uh, they had, you know, very little in terms of resources or food or nourishment, and uh, and they were being kept in this space with no possibility of leaving. And so uh, we saw at times that anti-Balaka, we were, was happening when we were there, were throwing in grenades or or firing RPGs into these enclaves where these tightly packed populations were living. You know, tens of thousands of people living in a space where normally 1,000 or 2,000 people would be living. And uh, and the same thing was happening in Piquet Sank. And what was happening in Piquet Sank, one of the photographs that you'll see in the article is the uh, is at a funeral, actually, um, of uh, a young girl who'd been killed on, on the way to church. And her family then decided to take out uh, revenge against the, 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 they thought the Muslims who killed their, their daughter or their sister, their cousin. There were many people involved. And so they went out into the streets and found the nearest Muslim they could find and, and, and killed him. And, and they were, when they were dragging that body towards a fire they'd built to burn, burn the body, they were then shot by peacekeepers. And of course, where this is all happening during a funeral, and where Peter and I are documenting this at the time, with you know, then suddenly the bullets are flying, and you don't know whether these are bullets are from the anti-Balaka or from the peacekeepers, or but they're still flying. So it, it's a that 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 photograph actually ends in a in quite a, a, a chaotic scene. Yeah. Um, of tit for tat killing on the streets, it, it was quite dramatic. Actually. I mean, in in those situations, like. What's going through your mind? Are you thinking I have to keep my camera going? I have to keep taking photographs? Or are you thinking I need to to you know get myself to safety? Like, what, how do you approach those situations? Like, what what what's your process? Well, I, the first thing is, of course, is security. Um, but normally, the most secure place when things like that are happening is exactly where you are. If you're still, you know, if if you haven't been shot, you just kind of we. I, I normally look around for the most secure space. 
but but of course the second reaction is you're there to document that's your job and and you try as best you can to carry on shooting and filming i was sh- both shooting stills and footage at that time uh and we have a film coming out next week i think a short documentary uh, that that covers some of these aspects and uh, and and so i i continue to film and and of course there's a lot of camera shake and there's a lot of movement and there's a a lot of chaos but hopefully somewhere in that you you manage to represent that chaos and you represent that fear because you're living it uh, with the population that you're documenting and and can i ask you about an, another photograph in that series and i i think it's from pk5 but forgive me if it's not um and it, it's one that just kind of really just like like arrested me in in, in a way um you have this this two it looks like it appears to be a couple um a young couple maybe in their in their early 20s with really sort of almost vacant sad looks in their eyes but this this man is wearing a tank top with like a smiling borat with it holding an, an american flag you know the the borat character sasha baron cohen's character in the movie from like yeah. 10 years yeah. ago and it's yeah. just such like a an amazing contrast i just like i couldn't stop looking at it kind of chuckling kind of feeling sad kind of just like being having like my mind blown by that juxtaposition how did you come to that photo can you tell me a little bit like behind that that, what the story is behind that photo yeah that was more uh, one of the more recent trips so that was taken in december of 2016 so just a few months ago and and i'd returned to document how the conflict had uh, changed the way people were living and how it was continuing and where it was continuing and what was happening to the populations that had been trapped. And and that couple is actually a Pearl couple. The Pearl uh, are um, a, a group of uh, cattle herders, mostly nomads, who, who look after the huge beef populations that roam the Central African plains. It doesn't, they just don't stay in Central African Republic, but they move from Chad to Central African Republic to Cameroon, and and they follow the rains and they follow the grass essentially, and so many of these pearl who were largely Muslim um, were caught up in this uh, anti-Muslim fight post twenty January twenty fourteen, and and uh, and many of them were attacked uh, uh, along with their livestock. Uh, the the anti-Balaka saw this as an opportunity to. Uh, loot the extraordinarily valuable um, beef stocks that the pearl were responsible for, and this this group that you see in that photograph were were trapped in very close to Bongi, and then they were shipped into this enclave by the United Nations uh, into Piquet where they were given a place to stay and a place to stay safely um, before that you know they could then maybe return to their herd if they still had one. And, and continue their livelihood. But now they live in Piquet Sank and they've really, and you know, whilst they've been living amongst conflict, they now live in this urban space and they actually quite enjoy it and don't want to return to their mm-hmm. nomad lifestyle. And so this couple are now living in that, in Piquet Sank, trying to build a life for themselves. I mean, how, how did you decide to, to capture that image? I was look. I was trying to shoot a series of photographs um, uh, that, that focused on this concept of, of neighbors, and I didn't just do this in Bangui, but I did it throughout the country. So I was focusing on groups and communities that had come back together again, both um, Christians, animist, and Muslim communities that had come to live back together again in their communities um, post this sectarian violence. 
and uh, and so I was I was looking for those communities that um, th- this was quite evident and 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 uh, in Pique Sank actually there are quite a few Christian families that have come back to live next to their Muslim neighbors um, and the Muslim neighbors have said you come here you're going to be safe we'll protect you this conflict wasn't about religion this conflict isn't about religion this was you know religions being mismanaged and manipulated by different leaders of different rebel groups and 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 some people are clear clearly aware of that and are, and are very protective about you know very different muslim groups and so this group were, was a, a part or this this couple was part of that shoot that they were in pique saint living close by a christian family living close by another muslim family and uh, and i was and, and actually it was all spread around the area two years before where I'd shot this funeral mm-hmm. and where this violence had been at its peak and, and this tit-for-tat killing has re- had resulted in nine people being killed that morning and they all lived ar- around the same block and it was just very interesting to see how life had changed and how communities and families and neighbours were coming back together trying to defy this um, abuse of their religion in a way by by different rebel leaders. And, and I mean, and, and when taking that specific photo, I mean, did you sort of recognize like the, 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 the sort of juxtaposition or the absurdity of, of that? Yeah. I mean, uh, of course the t-shirt helps, yeah. but, but also, you know, it's that Western reference that feels so lost in a space like that. And that very clear, you know, what, what does that represent? It represents Hollywood. It represents absurdity. It represents satire. It represents all of these things that were totally absent in this central space in central in, in Bangui, and uh, and uh, and and so it just seems so absurd that somehow, you know, that space was represented with these people in that place. It's, uh, it was very bizarre. I would love to learn more about you, your work. I, you know, I mentioned earlier you've been on my radar for a while. Certainly, I mean, since the the you're, you're documenting with Peter Buchart, um, but but even before that, I've, I've known of your work and and I've followed your work and I've been amazed by it. So I would love to learn a little bit more about how you got into this line of work. Where are you from? Where were you born? I was born in the north of England in a a place called the Lake District uh, in a town called Kendal, uh, where Kendal mint cake comes from. Um, if anyone has ever had that, I'm sure they have. But, um, I'm sorry, that reference is totally lost on me. <laughs> yeah, Google, Google it. <laughs> I'm sure it's um, delicious. It's very sweet and it, and it helps you walk hills <laughs> uh, because the north of England, is, it's basically the mountains and the lakes of England where, where I grew up mm-hmm. and in the Lake District. And then um, I, I did my undergrad in uh, business, economics and finance. And then uh, I went to work. Uh, in the city of London, as a uh, derivatives trader. Ah, that this is, is th- that 80s. is this is this is n- very far from your current métier. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, a long a long way away, and and uh, and I did that for nearly ten years. Derivative and, uh, derivative training in the nineteen eighties, eighties and nineties. Yeah, I was um, I was trading interest rate swaps and options in French francs and Swiss francs and sterling and probably making a good bit of money. I would imagine it was well paid. Yeah. Probably better uh, than photojournalism. Well, it's not difficult to be better paid than photojournalism. (laughs) That's clear. But, 
but you know, I, I, it was also a space, a, a time when Europe was having a lot of challenges, and and we had Bosnia um, going on at the time, and and which I followed intensely, and and then uh, and then when Kosovo started to flare up, nineteen ninety eight. I started to follow it even more intensely. And, and at that point, I, I realized that I didn't want to stay working in a bank. Um, no offense to bankers out there that are listening to your podcast, but it, it wasn't for me. Well, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I then left that space and, and decided to try to learn a little bit more about what was going on in Kosovo. Well, what does it mean to follow Kosovo closely in the 1990s? I mean, were you reading every single newspaper article you can get your hands on? Were you yeah, sort of I, trying to find Kosovars to interview them? No, I mean, I, I was sitting in an office in London and, of course, consuming the news as we all did. But then there, at that time, there was also some blogs from inside Kosovo coming out. I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe it was International War and Peace Reporting. Yes, yes, yeah, those were, that, that was the original sort of frontline sort of NGO reporting. Those those guys were great. I remember that. As yeah, well. and, and, and this is like first person pieces coming out of Pristina. And I remember vividly there was one girl who was writing um, about her life. You know, it was very open and very honest and very clear about the life that she was living and uh, and it touched me deeply, and uh, and and I, I really wanted to understand and learn a little bit more about about that space. And so, you know, I I left. I left the bank. Um, I resigned. Uh, it, it came at a particular we- weird time in that one of the people that I was with had had we were speaking about. A pati- I I can't actually remember what the incident was. But there had been some reporting on the news. And, and of course, you know, this conflict was going on on the borders of Europe and it did affect the price of currencies and things like that. And one of the traders mentioned or asked me, what do you think this is going to do to the price of dollar mark? And, and I was stunned at, that he'd reduced this humanitarian catastrophe to a potential to make money. And I just walked into the, my boss's office and I resigned. And uh, and I walked out of the bank because those days when you when you resign you don't go back to your desk, and that and I remember vividly that was a Wednesday and I and I took a flight to Macedonia on the Friday, and and I spent the next year trying to document and understand the conflict in in um, in Kosovo and at, at that time I you know I took a camera but I wasn't in any way a photographer it was just something I took. And I came back after a year with lots of very bad photographs. But I came back with a real passion for understanding and learning a lot more about how to engage and, and, and communicate what I saw. So I, I went back to study. Um, I did a postgrad in photojournalism at what was then called the London College of Printing, but it's kind of the University of Arts in London um, and, 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 and has an, an extremely good course. Now I think it's called the London College of Communication mm-hmm. and, and has, has actually started the careers of many photojournalists over the years and pretty can, amazing. Can, can I ask, because I, I, I've, I've, I think you're the, the, probably the first photojournalist I've, I've interviewed and I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the, 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 the process of it. 
Um, but would you say that your experience of being sort of interested in the the sort of understanding the world and and wanting to go to places of of conflict precedes your artistic ability? Is that that that's its common? So people sort of are interested first, and then they become. A skilled photographer second, or is it typical that people are skilled photographers and then they go to places to, to document them to try to put their skills to use? I, I think it depends on the photographer, but I, I always, if if people are asking me, you know, where should you go and study photography? I, I tell them not to. <laughs> I tell them to go and study anthropology or international relations or politics or history. Go and get a view of the world. Go and get an understanding of the world around you before you um, before you go and on this journey with this camera, it's very easy to learn how to take pictures. It's very difficult to start to understand the nuanced nature of our world. And I think the more time we spend studying that, the better. And, and, and so apologies to all photography schools out there that are trying to recruit people. But I really think, I really think it's better for if, you, if you're passionate about photography or journalism, then you study your world around you. So I think that's key. Like how do you then sort of capture the nuance of the world, as you said, in a, a photograph? I mean, is, is it art or is it science or like, like what, what's your process to, to combine what you just said? It's emotion. You're documenting people and you have to understand people and you have to understand the way they live their life and, and what they're experiencing and if you can't, you know, every the beating heart of every village and of every town are the people and the relationships that go on in there. And and so you have to represent that reality. You have to represent how how conflict impacts people's lives. And, and you do that through showing the emotion that people express as a result of that or the relationships that are destroyed as a result of that or the relationships that are made stronger or 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 the relationships that are created. But it's all about emotion. It's all about relationships. It's not science. Well, well then it's where people. where do do you identify your sort of empathy as coming from, or your capacity to be so uh, empathetic, which is is what you just said is is critical to taking these photos. I I, I think that comes from my mom. Actually, um, we come from a very big Irish family. My mother was one of fifteen, sixteen kids. I think around that number, and and I have so many cousins I lost count, and that and that kind of closeness, that family, that, and they were of course displaced themselves. They came to England from Ireland in the fifties, sixties, and 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 this whole family, you know, relocated, and and so the, the kind of understanding. There's always kind of been a deep need in our family to understand local populations and, and, and be appreciative of different cultures and different, you know, I remember my mother um, talking about the fact that she didn't have an Irish passport because uh, when she moved to England, she had to destroy it because she didn't want to be persecuted as being Irish in the 60s. That was in the north part of England. You were, you know, you were a second class citizen if you were Irish. And, uh, and and she felt that she understood that, and we we all kind of grew up with that. So understanding maybe how persecuted groups feel uh, kind of tra carries through. And and I, I of course grew up with my grandfather, who was a great influence 
uh, who had traveled the world and went to live in New York in 19, whatever, 13, 14, I think, and, uh, and then traveled back to Ireland. So I grew up with these stories of travel and different groups and different people and different cultures. And it kind of instilled this need to go and see it, I think. So back in, in photography school in, in London, um, I mean, were, were you uh, sort of at that point dedicated to pursuing this as, as a career that you wanted to become a, a photojournalist? Yeah, I, when I was still at school, this was probably 89, nine, uh, sorry, uh, 99, 2000, 99, probably. Um, I went to Sierra Leone um, for Christmas, as you do. <laughs> and uh, and at the time, it was a, there was a conflict there with the RUF controlling the, the diamond mines in, a, in an area called Koidu. Well, can, can and, I ask, uh, why, why did you go to Sierra Leone for Christmas? <laughs> I don't know, actually. Um, I, I think that there was this, maybe I was feeling, you know, after years of working in a bank, you, you kind of, and also kind of mixing that with being Catholic, you kind of have this whole guilt thing going on. And, and, you know, maybe you try to kind of compensate for something. I have no idea. But I, I went there because, again, like Kosovo, I, I'd heard a lot about it in the news and I really wanted to understand it. It was complex. It was definitely more nuanced than I was reading in the, in the magazines and newspapers. And, and I wanted to understand and put a face on it for myself. And so uh, I went there and, and documented the the conflict there was quite violent and quite physical, and, and there was a lot of amputation by the the RUF. Uh, the, the slogan for the government at the time was, uh, during the government elections, was raise your hand for the government. And so the RUF thought that if they could chop the hands and arms off people, then they wouldn't be able to raise their hands for the government. And this was a kind of uh, the, the modus operandi for the RUF, and, and, and it resulted in quite a lot of amputations. Uh, and and thousands of people had lost you know lost limbs uh, and and I, I documented that and then I, I went back to document the diamond mines and and so I went um, together with another photojournalist at the time Kadir van Luhausen um, to to document the diamond mines and we got access through a, a letter of uh, a laissez passer from uh, Fodisanko who was the leader of the RUF. And we took this letter to every checkpoint all the way into the diamond mines and every child soldier led us through because this letter had been signed by Fodisanko. And, uh, and we stayed for nearly a week in, in those mines and documented the, the way the RUF were extracting diamonds to fund the, this conflict. And that really started this focus on natural resources for me, mm-hmm. which led me to the Democratic Republic mm-hmm. of Congo later on. on- on on uh, Sierra Leone, where were you publishing at that point? That was published in the Sunday Times magazine, uh, which at the time was was kind of the the like the bastion of photojournalism. It was the it was the place Don McCullen worked. It's the it's the space where, as a young photojournalist, you wanted to be published uh, in the UK at least. It's well, kind of the equivalent of the New York Times magazine, I suppose. Did Did you have um? a sense that the photographs that you are printing in the Sunday Times uh, would have an impact on the policy debate in the UK? I mean, just for, for people who aren't aware, the United Kingdom sent troops to Sierra Leone uh, around that time uh, to try to you know, squash the, 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 the really horrendous uh, conflict that was going on. It was a rather successful intervention. It was, yeah. And, and, and I think at the time, I was definitely less aware of the power that photography can have on policy 
um, that came a little later for me um, with my um, relationship with Human Rights Watch and, and, and becoming more politically engaged with them and using photography to do that. At the time, publishing in the Sunday Times magazine, I, I, I had no idea whether anyone at Whitehall would read this or anyone at the Ministry of Defence would read this and make decisions. Um, thinking about it, they probably already, by the time that was published, they were already in country. So you know, the, it, it, the lead time for publishing these things is quite long, or it used to be. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the kind of relationship with photography and policymakers came a little later, about 2003, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So tell me, that's, that's how um, I think most of the world came to know your work was probably through the, the DRC. Um, yeah, so, right. so how can you walk me through how, how did you identify DRC as a place that you felt compelled to document, compelled to, to go to? I was drawn there um, by because I, w- I was in Central African Republic and I was covering, trying to cover the conflict from afar. At that time, it was very difficult to get access to get a visa for DRC. Um, Long Kabila had just taken power from Mobutu. And there was an extraordinarily um, high level of mistrust and skepticism for foreign journalists. Uh, And the only other journalist that was working at the time, um, I think you've had her on your show, Michaela Rong. Would I be right? Yes, 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 of course. Yes. So she was the Reuters correspondent back then. In, in Kinshasa. I think so. Let me, I'll, I'll have to double check. I've, I've done a lot of these. <laughs> it's, it's, um, but Leah, yeah. I, I, the, 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 the name definitely rings a bell. Yeah, she was the Reuters current, and she published a book in the footsteps of Mr. Kurtz. And then, that's, that's how I know her. Yes, yes, yes. I don't think yeah. she's been on the show. But it's she will a, be, uh, too. I'm writing her name down. Thank you. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is how I get my ideas, people. There you go. Yeah. So... Um, uh, I think she was one of the very few people there and I was reading her work and I was trying to get access to the country and I couldn't. Uh, and, and so I was in the Central African Republic documenting the refugee flow into the Central African Republic from, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, and uh, I met the, um, the ambassador, the Congolese ambassador one evening over drinks in some bar who said um, that he would give me a visa the following day. Uh, he had quite a few beers at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and so I went to his office uh, thinking that I was just going to be thrown out and, and, and said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he gave me a visa, gave me a one-month visa. And, uh, and I went into the country and I started to document what I saw. And the only way that I – the, the there were so few references at that point. Uh, and, and I'd done, I suppose, as everyone does in a cliched fashion – Kind of when they're going to the Democratic Republic of Congo, you read uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and try to kind of get some level of reference to the historic campaign and, and how that, that impacted on the, the Congolese people. And, and, uh, and that kind of built up this fascination with the river. And so over the next four years, I traveled the River Congo. Uh, I managed to renew my visas and I started documenting life around the River Congo, which essentially was documenting the conflict. And, uh, and, and that was, that kind of was the, my first book, 100 Years of Darkness, which kind of came out. Um, and it was using kind of Conrad's text and, and also 
as, as kind of historical references, but also looking at modern day Congo and, and seeing how right or wrong that, those references were. Are there still relics of that era along the Congo River, like old um, factories that are abandoned, that sort yeah. of thing? There are old, um, the old steamers that used to run up and down the Congo River are lying rotting there by the side of, you know, the the the, the bank in in places like Bandaka. They've been largely cleared up around Kinshasa, but if you go a bit further up the river in Bandaka, the you you still see them, and and they you know the 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 old palaces as well, kind of overgrown. But uh, there are definitely references to that time there. Yeah. And and it's almost like the same story, just resource extraction, fueling conflict and, and, and misery. It is, and it's amazing how many times that has recycled in the DRC. Uh, and and you know, whether we're talking about looking for rubber and uh, and ivory, which is what essentially King Leopold was doing at the time, which led to the abuses that uh, kind of culminated in the the, the the writing of you know Conrad's book and and him referencing this time, um, or it's tin tantalum tungsten cobalt, you know in in twenty seventeen uh, it, it's still a country that's largely looked upon as a a space where resources are extracted and the people are largely forgotten and abused along the way. So uh, yeah, on, on cobalt, I remember I was reading this UN report like a couple years ago explaining how Rwanda was like a major exporter of cobalt, even though there is no cobalt found in Rwanda. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that could have been coltan. Actually. Coltan, okay, yeah. Col yeah. Very, possibly coltan, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so how did you get connected then with Human Rights Watch uh, around this time? Because obviously this was, you said, in, in the early 2000s. This was, uh, you know, uh, about when I suppose the um, the peace deal was was starting to take hold, although it was kind of a peace deal in, in, in name only, especially in the eastern parts of the country. So what was your connection to Human Rights Watch at the time? I'd done some work in two places. I was working consecutively in Darfur. And, uh, and also in uh, Ituri, in around a town called Bunia in northeastern Congo, which is where the conflict at that time was really at its peak. Uh, and, and that was over the access to gold. And there were two groups, the Hema and the Lendu, very similar to the uh, Hutu and the Tutsi uh, conflict that we saw in Rwanda. The Hema and the Lendu were used and, and their ethnicities were used by various warlords to um, to rally around a particular idea, which essentially allowed the warlords to carry on extracting natural resources, and in this case, gold. And I worked on a report with the amazing researcher Annika van Buttenberg. Yes, she's uh, been on the show. Yeah, she's yeah. Uh, she's incredible. And Annika and I have worked maybe 10, 12 years together in, in DRC covering issues like this. And, and that was one of the, that was the first report I worked with her on. And, uh, and uh, the photographs were one of the first times as well that, that Human Rights Watch had used, audio, uh, had used visuals to, to really break up these dour, lengthy referenced reports. And, um, and, uh, and, and it really worked. But uh, we were trying to focus on two organizations at the time. One, uh, somebody, a group called Metalore Technologies, who were buying a lot of gold from Uganda, uh, similar to Rwanda. There were, there were no 
deposits of gold in Uganda and uh, and and but hundreds of millions of dollars of quote unquote Ugandan gold was being purchased by Metalor Technologies, a Swiss group, uh, and then of course sold onto the international exchanges, and we were buying it. And um, and also Anglo Gold Ashanti, who was one of the main gold mining organizations at the time. Um, and uh, they were both implicated in that report. Uh, and and Metalaw Technologies didn't listen as quickly as they possibly should have done. And we used the photographs and the report to really pressure them to withdraw their purchases of gold. And eventually they did stop buying this gold from Uganda, which dried up the financing of that conflict overnight, $150 million worth of gold financing or financing for those rebel groups through gold dried up. Unfortunately, then it was replaced several months later by other purchases. But but it, for, a, for a period there, the financing for that conflict stopped and it, and it allowed the international community to start to putting it under control. I mean, that must have been so sort of gratifying as, as, as a photographer to know that, you know, the photographs that you were taking just had a fairly immediate policy impact in like the real world. Yeah, we, we actually had an exhibition in Geneva, I think, it, or Zurich, would it have been? Switzerland, anyway. I can't remember. It was such a long time ago now. But um, it was in the atrium of UBS, and we invited <laughs> Metalaw Technologies, and we invited all the journalists and the shareholders of these corporations, and we showed them what they've been doing. And we had an open discussion, uh, and it was, and we did that in New York, and we did it in I mean, Toronto, and we did it everywhere that they were. UBS, so the, the, the bank, gold. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so could you ever imagine, uh, you know, having walked out of that uh, room as a derivative trader, quit your job, <laughs> that years later your work would be once again featured in 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 a bank? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was very interesting to kind of walk halls like that again, but uh, wearing a different hat. That's so, for sure. So when you're when you're um, taking photographs for a, a group like Human Rights Watch and versus say uh, for for a journalistic outlet like the National Geographic or, or like New York Times Magazine, is is your process different at all? Like, do you do you approach how you um, take your photographs and choose your subjects in any sort of profoundly different way? No, I, I work exactly the same way. Uh, essentially, I'm 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 trying to document what I see. Uh, the, the organization that I'm working for might define where I go or determine where I go. It certainly did with Peter because we were trying to document a certain part of that conflict. And so we, were, we went to certain towns in order to do that. But once I arrived in those towns, my method of, of working didn't change at all, actually, uh, from what I would do with National Geographic or another editorial client. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and increasingly, actually, you know, the, the, the NGO and advocacy groups within the world of photography and photojournalism are becoming extremely significant players, both as content providers, but also content uh, creators. And, and many photojournalists are now working almost uniquely for these advocacy groups and the NGOs, um, uh, just because there is no work to be had in, in some of the mainstream magazines. Can can I ask something? So you know, I've I've never done like real conflict reporting, uh, but you know, I, I've been to uh, you know places. I've seen extreme poverty. I've seen you know human rights abuses. Um, but when it, it's it's like when I'm writing, you know, hours later or weeks later is when mm -hmm. I sort of emotionally process 
what I saw and, and it's, it's sort of how I kind of come to grips with what I saw and, and trying to make something good out of it. Um, it seems to me, and, and I, I could be wrong cause I've, 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 I've never done what you do, have done obviously, but there's something a little more immediate uh, about taking a, a photo of, of some horrendous thing that you saw. Um, is, is, how do you kind of emotionally come to grips with what you're doing? Is it, is it at the time? Is it in the moment or is it when you're in the dark room or, or looking through your, your, um, photographs later on that you have like this kind of, uh, opportunity to process what happened? Like how, how do you sort of emotionally come to grips with a lot of the, the horrendous things that you necessarily have to see if you're going to take their photo? It happens throughout that process. So, you, you know, you're, you're trying to understand and work out and process it as you see it, uh, as you're documenting it. Um, but, of course, you have to remain present so that you can do your job. Um, and then, you you know, you also have you know, you'll go back to your room in the evening and and and, and you, you look at these photographs. You try to edit them and send them back to your client and, uh, or try to build them into some form of narrative so you understand what you have to go out and do again tomorrow. Uh, to 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 create a narrative that's understandable and complete and, and complete, um, but also that allows you time to think and 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 try and process what you've seen. And sometimes that is overwhelming. Um, you know, I'm I'm very open that the Central African Republic kind of created something that I'd never felt before, and and I I felt something inside. You know, after a year and a half, two years, something inside changed. And and uh, and I came back, knowing that I needed some time away, and and I asked Human Rights Watch if I could speak to somebody about that, uh, and they were extraordinarily supportive. And I started speaking to someone who uh, who had uh, experience in navigating people through PTSD and and coming to terms with the things that they'd seen and experienced. And I, and I had several months where I I needed to needed help working that out. Uh, in, in the previous conflicts, I hadn't. I managed to do it on my own, but, but somehow in in car that the, the violence there was so acute and so personal, and so immediate and so present and so unrelenting that um, yeah, it, something just broke for a while. And, and I needed to work out how to process it. Well, and, and I just have to imagine that you need to make yourself so vulnerable to be so empathetic to 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 take those photos to to sort of understand what you're doing that you know that that vulnerability has to be just so so raw and that's probably where you know the 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 roots of these amazing photos come from is in that vulnerability but at the same time you're you're opening your yourself up to some really sort of raw and, and powerful forces yeah I, I mean you're experiencing or you try to see you're seeing you know the horrific lives that people have have been living and the impact that that you know year, years and years of misrule and, and 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 violence have had upon them and their families and you, and and there is no way you can put barriers up to that or, or or guard yourself against it if not if you did that you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to communicate um the, the effectively what it is that you 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 see and and also you wouldn't be able to communicate the power and the emotion and and the sensitivity, and so yeah, you you have to be a little open and a little raw, and and I think to some extent that's where, in car these kind of things start to affect you. So I had to take some time out actually, quite some time out before I, 
to work out what what it is that um, what it is that that went on, and I and I tried to understand the conflicting car from more academic level than than maybe I had done in previous conflicts. And and so on that academic front, what's next for you? I, I remember you telling me that you're working on an, uh, a master's degree. Is that right? I yeah. So this again, part of this kind of process of trying to understand car and trying to come to terms with this PTSD. I crazily signed up for a master's at Cambridge in in the UK in international relations. That is more of a research um, sort of it's a part time thing. So of course I've been working whilst been trying to do this and just become recently the father of twins whilst holding down a job and doing a master's degree. So uh, yeah, not the most sane decision I've ever made, Oh my gosh! but, but really uh, meaningful because it allowed me through the research to process and understand more um, profoundly uh, what was going on in car and, and, and looking at it from an academic pers- perspective um, has really helped that, I think, and, and has really helped me focus on on what happened there and what may happen there in the future. So it's been a really fascinating journey, actually. Uh, well, Marcus, thank you so much for your time and for your work. And I, I recommend everyone to check out the latest edition of, of National Geographic, the May edition, if you're listening to this contemporaneously. Uh, it, it, it's stunning. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been nice to be here. All right. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to Marcus. That was fantastic. You know, I started this uh, episode by saying I was a little out of my element talking to photographers. I thought I would be, but I felt right at home with, with Marcus. I mean, he has that nerdy tendencies, as you can tell by his decision to pursue a master's degree in international relations. And frankly, I think his story is probably inspiration to a lot of you out there who reached out to me to tell you that this podcast in one way or another inspires them to kind of reconsider their own career paths and maybe make that that switch into uh, international affairs from whatever it is that you are doing. I actually hear from a number of you that that's something that um, you're interested in doing and you ask my advice for it. I'm happy to to share whatever advice I, I can I can give. Just send me an email. It's I, I know it's a daunting question to want to make a kind of career shift or career change, but as Marcus's story demonstrates it's it's totally possible and you can excel as he has. I should get Platon on the uh, on the podcast have him tell me stories about those world leaders that sat on his uh, studio seat to get their portraits taken. All right, I'll work on that. All right, another big thank you to all the premium subscribers out there. Holy moly, like Marcus Bleasdale. I tell you, I, I know I said this at the beginning of the episode, but it was a thrill to see his name pop up in my email as a premium member. And it's a thrill every time uh, one of you becomes a premium subscriber. I so appreciate the support. Thank you for supporting the show. I'll leave a link where you can be like Marcus and become a premium subscriber in the description field of the podcast. So you don't even have to look up from your phone. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Bye.